welcome to another edition of Old School Guns. This is episode 179, 179. So, we have some big news, and I've been waiting for a little while to deliver this. Uh, a person who I had little or no respect for was Senator Diane Feinstein of California. Now, I, I'm sure she was a nice grandmother and, and nice old lady, but... When it came to public policy and when it came to her personal ethics and the deception she pulled, she was a rotten human being. That's the way it is. Um, you know, here she is. I, I guess she was 90, 92. I, I don't know. And she was in the Senate. You know, functionally, she died like five years ago. I mean, she, she's been out of it for a long time. They've been using her just as a puppet in the Senate. Really... Uh, pretty ghoulish really but the Demo that's the democratic party of the united states they they put a mental defective zombie named fetterman in there they had feinstein and they probably have a couple of others so yeah it's uh it's pretty grim feinstein though <clears throat> just to cover just to cover the record why i hold her in such disdain uh, for 30 years, she had a chauffeur who was Chinese and, in fact, an agent of the Chinese government, a government which her husband, now deceased, of course, did millions of dollars worth of business. The same government that, remember, before 9-11, um, there was a one of those one of those you know surveillance planes that picks up signals one of ours was flying in international airspace and in international over international waters near china chinese fighters came up and were harassing it one of the fighters came so close it actually hit the plane and you know the chinese fighter went into the drink the pilot was never found the plane was damaged and it made an emergency landing at unfortunately a Chinese airbase on Hinian Island and remember the Chinese held the crew for about two weeks the crew destroyed the stuff inside the plane um, and you know everybody was pressuring the brand new newly inaugurated George W. Bush to apologize to the Chinese well Feinstein made her own apology she she went on and you know in contravention to allowing the executive branch to conduct foreign policy she made this thing so that was one thing she was heinous that of course she was a preeminent gun controller um, all the time while having a concealed carry permit one of the very few in san francisco then when she made a big display of turning it and her gun in she actually had a permit for a second gun which she kept and I assume she did this until she just got way too old and, and couldn't do it. But um, yeah, she actually she made a big show out of turning in her gun and her permit. And when in fact she had a second one. Um, now, did she have a right to defend herself? Yeah, but did she have a right to deceive everybody? Probably not. Of course, she was behind the assault weapons ban of 1994, which lasted for 10 years. Um, I'm not well disposed to somebody who has made it their life goal and their life's work to deprive me and you of second amendment rights and you, you gotta wonder why are you doing this um she was you know of course she was in on the you know in the aftermath of the assassination of uh um george moscone and harvey milk 
and you know you can read about those two characters um the the problem with both of, all of that is the gun that the assassin carried wasn't it didn't operate on its own it was in fact a very pedestrian um police type revolver um that just out of courtesy because this guy had been a former policeman they allowed him to carry and kind of go in and out of the building and i think he actually snuck into the building when he shot him just not because he was smuggling in a gun but because he didn't want to be seen as going in and out of there so he he basically uh, uh she was in the aftermath of that but it wasn't the gun's fault but to people like feinstein you know any excuse to take a gun away from you and i is a good excuse you know never let a crisis go to waste would have been the later uh, version of that and so you know you got this hideous horrible person now where she's also a hypocrite is she is forgiving israel everything weapons everything so weapons for israel but no weapons for you and i and in fact she and i would actually agree that israel should be armed should be assisted um you know to Two people I admire quite a bit were David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan. So, I mean, I, I you know, I was kind of like, yeah, that's it. But don't, on, then on the other hand, say, yeah, but nobody in the United States can have a, have a weapon. No, we, they have, you know, big threats in Israel, but we got big threats here too. So, um, you know, that, that was complete hypocrisy. So I always wonder, what is the motivation behind a diane feinstein you know what is what is the liberal oh and, and that was the other thing they would always call her the centrist democrat calling her a centrist democrat is like saying well you know hitler was kind of an anti-semite you know it, it's complete understatement completely deceptive understatement she was no more of a centrist than uh any of the most liberal people you can you can imagine she was not a centrist no way so yeah that's 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 the line of of nonsense they've been throwing out but to get back to my original point she what is the point behind them and gun control these ultra liberal radical radicalized gun controllers and the answer is it ties in with this oblique ar um, argument of privilege they believe that most people in the country especially caucasians not exclusively but especially uh lead lives of privilege and of course we know that's not true but they believe that the things you have around you your education your starting with your upbringing your education the your opportunities at work and all that were essentially just derivatives of your privilege and they've been trying to strip people of privilege for quite a while it doesn't really work because it's all it's all basic based on nonsense but the ultimate the ultimate stripping of your privilege would be that you are at the mercy of the mob and you're gonna get yours because for generations your privilege has propagated down to you and you know they, they've gotten some people to kind of buy into this because you know you look at most people in the country okay you have and you look at the mathematics and you go back the civil war was 160 years ago um 
you kind of go back and you say, wait a minute, we have four grandparents, we have eight great grandparents, then all of a sudden it gets starts to get crazy. You got 16 great great grandparents, and then 32 great 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 grandparents, and then 64, and then 128. So if you go back enough years, you could find 500 people who are your ancestors. I mean, that's just the mathematics. And the chance, and their belief is the chance that some of those 500 people were involved in slavery, therefore you have illegally profited from slavery, and it's about time that you get held accountable. Now, it's completely specious, a lie, totally, totally irrational. It's, it's psychosis. I mean, they are mentally deranged to think that way because most people don't know who their great-great-grandparents were or even sometimes their great-grandparents or their grandparents. They don't even know. They don't even know. Nobody goes back seven, unless you're into genealogy, nobody goes back seven, eight, or nine generations. And to think that, well, maybe you had one ancestor out of, you know, 512 who were, who were involved in slavery. Uh, I mean, you know, come on, really? I mean, really? Um, that, that would be going back six or seven generations. And you know, if you ever do any of this genealogy testing, one of the things you'll notice is you'll put in your, you know, you, 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 you do a little swab test and all that. Most of the genetic matches, quote unquote, they come up with are like the four to sixth cousins. And you have to do some real backtracking to figure out who these people are. And yeah, all of a sudden you are connected to them, but it's a very tiny, tenuous connection with a sixth cousin. You know, it really is. And the ans the common ancestors or ancestor you would have back there is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to try to hold people accountable today for that. But, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of this is if you don't have weapons, the thuggery crowds, which you see snatching, snatching, <laughs> smashing and grabbing in in the inner cities right now, and, and looting stores, the kind of people who were burning cities during the pandemic, all of a sudden you're very vulnerable to that. And that's what they want. You need to be vulnerable to that. They don't want you like the couple in St. Louis that's got an AR-15 and nobody dares step on their lawn they want you cowering in your house as it's burning they want you to get drug out of your car and get beaten why do you think they're so soft on these people now why do you that what do you think these soros appointed uh district attorneys are appointed actually i guess they're elected um district attorneys what do you think they're doing turning turning people loose like crazy no no bail nothing people with rap sheets a mile long how many times have we heard somebody's committed a murder and gee they've had 12 or 15 arrests in the last two or three years we, we it's, it's all the time it is all the time and they want to turn that loose on you and that's why i have always hated Fi diane feinstein and i'm you know fundamentally glad she's dead she's she needs to be gone she was evil she was a horrible human being 
and what she wanted for you is is really a horrid um, reckoning with people who um, you don't really need a reckoning with. So that's God. Ding dong, the evil witch is dead. Okay, getting to some kind of cool stuff. Uh, let's see. The AMU, Army Marksmanship Unit, is now trying to order 6.8 by 51 match ammo. <laughs> so the new, the new high-performance cartridge that they're coming out with in the M5, I guess it's the M5 carbine. Uh, now there's going to be a match version, and they're going to be shooting it at matches because now it's going to be essentially like a 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, I don't know what's happening with all the high-performance loadings, but this is all going to... It's obviously going to get a 6.8 match bullet. Uh, 51, you know, hey, it's, it is what it is. Um, it's going to look a lot like... You know, kind of the seven millimeter 08, I think. If it's if it's in a, if it's not that high performance loading they're talking about, it's going to look a lot like that probably. And uh, they're going to they're going to use it now. What that bodes, you know, SOCOM went kind of I won't say all in, but they went in for the 6.5 Creedmoor like 2019. I don't know if they're going to continue with that or they'll convert to this. I don't know, but we'll see. But it's interesting that it's getting turned into a tar target. The ultimate combat cartridge is now going to become a target cartridge. Kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, let's see. Ah, talk about my favorite, one of my favorite dirt bags. We're finally rid of this General Mark Milley. What a worthless, woke, stupid an absolutely destructive man who became chief of staff of the well, chief of staff of the army first and then chairman of the joint chiefs and you know what he is he was disgraced he's the guy who led bergdahl bo bergdahl the guy who defected to the taliban he let him off the hook uh for political reasons so he could climb some more uh he's absolutely the worst chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he is the physical symbol, the personification of the decline of the country. And uh, I think he needs to be, you know, excoriated for who and what he is and what he's done. Our readiness is at the lowest it's been since before World War II. Um, we've never been this ill-prepared. They can't even get, they, you know, most of our young people can't, uh, can't qualify for military service, even if they wanted to, which they don't. Um, the, other, the other side of the coin is, now he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs when this happened, so this is his problem. The, the Air Force is relaxing its prohibition of marijuana. So now we're going to have a bunch of airmen who are walking around, burned out, smoking dope in the barracks unbelievable unbelievable they and they think that's going to solve a manpower problem it's, it's absolutely unbelievable but millie the dirtbag is gone i think the guy who's replacing him is another bum he's the one and i've mentioned this before he's the one who said we're going to take lessons from the ukraine war and apply them to the u.s military and it's like 
No, fool, you need to be thinking forward. Never fight the last war. Never retool to fight the last war. That has never worked out. It has never worked out. Uh, just wanted to do something uh, on, like, my favorite Armalite, I call it. Uh, we were had a shooting contest a couple of weeks ago. It was a lot of fun. It was in the rain. A lot of challenges. But the great part about it was I took the um, Brownells Proto AR-15, and boy, did I enjoy shooting that. What a great rifle that is. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little quirky compared to regular AR-15s because it has the trigger um, charging handle. Um, but it's really, if you like older tech, you like that kind of, you know, seeing someone's design in its complete original state. It, it is absolutely fantastic. And uh, God, what a great shooting rifle that is. I don't know who made their barrels or where they got them, but man, that thing just shot so well. We're shooting 100 yards offhand. Um, you know, not a, not a hugely difficult thing, but you know, man, that thing really grouped a lot better than I thought it would. So very happy with that. And with that, I was shooting one of my favorite pistols. It's a 1911, but it's not a military one. It looks like it, but it's not. It's uh, the Auto Ordnance. And, you know, I have to say, I've been using that gun in a couple of matches, and that is a great firearm. Auto Ordnance, when they redid, you know, they the stuff they made up until about the 90s, I guess, um, was kind of cruddy, you know. <laughs> their, their 1911s were, at best, a very basic... 1911 and you know with ball ammunition they were reasonably they, they were okay um i'm sure that there are horror stories about them but the new ones that they came out with um they look like a dead ringer of a 1911 a1 and the really nice thing is they have um series 80 enhancements um, i could personally live without those but it does give you an extra measure of safety and i kind of like that um but I could really live without those. And I could take the parts out. I could do all that, but I don't. But it's a very, very uh, cool, very accurate, nicely made gun. And, uh, you know, for a long time, those things were selling in the $500 range. I think they're probably more now. But, um, you know, if you get your hands on one of those, you could do you could do a lot worse. Uh, ah, another, another thing. Um, a friend of mine has a... And, and I've bagged on these things terribly, but he bought a Henry rifle, one of the 3030s. Um, it's a cool gun. It's got the King's patent loading gate. Um, plus, you can also take the um, the end of the tube magazine out, and you can load it that way, the way Henry's normally load. So it's got two ways to load, which is kind of cool. Uh, it's still got that kind of Henry look to it. I'm not a real fan of it, but, you know, it's got the brass receiver, it's got a good barrel. It shoots well. It's a fun, fun rifle. I think they're very pleased with it. They love it. And so that's all that matters is that the person who has it loves it. That's all that matters with that. Okay. Well, that's about the, that's about the biggest part. Um, nothing really to comment on with the uh, gun culture as far as uh, anything goes. Um, I hate bagging on other people. Sometimes I just don't, don't like doing it, even though I I see a lot of nonsensical things on the internet. When it comes to firearms, you have to be very careful uh, what information you get on the uh, the internet. That's for sure. But 
anyway I will go to questions and answers this is my favorite part and if you ever have any questions or comments you can email them to me kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com and I will be sure to uh, um, address your question and answer it in the next podcast so I will do that uh, first question what do you think of the sour 38h uh, I like it for those that that may not this may not be ringing a bell sour 38h was a World War II produce era produced uh, German handgun uh, primarily for the German army and German police um, it uh, is it sounds more cool 7.65 you know ACP um, it's actually it's a 32 ACP uh, I think it holds 7 8 shots something like that it's a nice little gun comparable in size to a Walther PPK or Walther PP you know right in that that area and in fact it was actually considered for the James the early James Bond movies to be you know his gun uh, it was rejected for two reasons. Number one, it was seen as a Nazi gun. And the next one is it wasn't in production anymore. So, um, you know, there the boon comes to Walther, who is producing the PPK and therefore the, you know, the, the gun that became Bond's gun was the PPK. So that was the, that was the impetus for that. And but it was it was it was strongly considered because it was very cool. It's uh, internal hammer. It's got kind of a strange little cocker decocker um, on the uh, left side grip. Uh, nice little gun was a favorite of German paratroopers. You know, I, I I'm not big into even though I have been to German army parachute training in the modern era. Their World War II stuff. I think they did not jump with their primary weapon they kind of dropped those in canisters so you would carry a small handgun with you so you had something when you hit the ground you know to cover you between hitting the ground and, and going over to your canister and recovering your uh, rifle or submachine gun or, or whatever else so it was very popular for that reason and a very very good gun um, they shoot very well uh, they were very well made they have uh, army the they have army and police markings the police markings i believe are a lot more rare so you will you will pay accordingly for those um i do think that uh it's it's as far as 32s go it's it's a great gun a great piece of history so i really like it it's it's interesting and it's it's super super good quality you know the quality never dropped during the war so there you go uh what is your favorite firearms mystery hmm that's a very broad question i would have to say that one of my favorites is which rifle did sergeant york use in world war one when he did his medal of honor winning action there's been a lot of arguments whether it was a 1917 or a 1903 currently from what i've seen the 1917 argument is the most persuasive so that's probably what he had but it is still a mystery because i believe 
his son or grandson, I can't remember which, said he spoke with him when he was still alive and Sergeant York told him, Alvin C. York told him that he had a Springfield when he did all that and not uh, 1917 Enfield. So, yeah, we'll see. No way to know at this point. I do know that at the 82nd Airborne Museum, World War One, there were obviously no airborne troops, so it was just the 82nd Infantry Division. That's the division that Alvin C. York was in. And he was only like a PFC when this happened. They call him Sergeant York. That was kind of, he kind of got promoted along because they wanted to kind of build the myth. And there's actually a lot of, I don't, there is controversy as to whether or not he was the solo operator or whether he was operating as part of a team that, you know, because there was a patrol out there. And he was, he was never in charge of the patrol. Um, couple of the leaders got wounded and he he was ne he never took charge of the patrol so a lot of there was there was always controversy that he wasn't really the the solo guy who deserved the medal of honor that other people deserved things too and they got nothing so there's always that but the 82nd airborne museum for a long time they had a a mannequin made up as sergeant york and the rifle they had with it was actually a p14 which looks almost exactly like an M1917, but the dead giveaway was the uh, uh, stock had the wooden plug where the brass, where the brass unit identification disc would go on the butt. Um, it's signifying that this rifle had been through the Whedon upgrade in the 1920s and 30s or 30s. So <laughs> what that meant was they had actually had a 303 uh, British rifle that the Americans really never used so but it was an ancestor the direct ancestor of, of the 1917 they have since replaced it the last time I was at Fort Bragg which is now Fort Liberty yeah for some stupid reason it's now Fort Liberty um, anyway they they've replaced it with a proper 1917 rifle so I guess that mystery is kind of there uh, another mystery, and I'm kind of reaching on this one, but the D.B. Cooper hijacking mystery. Um, he hijacked an airliner in 1971, got $200,000, let all the people go, and then bailed out over Washington State. And I could go on and on about this. It's very interesting. He chose the 727, which had, which was the only airline at the t airliner at the time, which had these rear stairs that you could basically drop and you know it was designed that you went to a you went to an airport and they didn't have one of those rolling things coming out because not all of them had jetways in those days the things they do now that hook to the thing uh, this was self-contained you could just park this airplane any place drop the stairs and people could get on and off in fact when it was the uh, they used them exclusively as R&R birds taking you out on R&R &R when we were in the Balkans. I remember I got, on, and because they would land, they wouldn't even turn the engines off or anything in Bosnia. And you basically scampered down these stairs and uh, you had to go about 100 meters and then you could turn left or right to get to the deal because they didn't, because the engines are clustered in the back and they, they didn't want people getting singed. And uh, the same thing, you, when you came out, when you wanted to get on it, you, you came out and you had to approach the aircraft from the, 
about 100 yards and then turn and then go straight into the uh, uh, up these stairs. So it was a very, you know, a very good aircraft for that. But anyway, he, he basically hijacked the thing. Um, he got on the he got on the plane in those days there was no airport security to speak of he got on the plane uh opened up his briefcase showed the stewardess what looked like a bomb was probably fake but nobody really knows because nobody ever found it uh they land the airplane he gets two hundred thousand dollars they take off the airplane he tells them um basically they're heading towards reno they're at ten thousand feet and they're going less than 200 miles an hour the plane is just above stall speed and at some point over Washington over lower Washington state he scampered he lowered the stairs scampered down the stairs and jumped off and into mystery and i've always wondered what now where how, where does any of this tie up with firearms because nobody saw a firearm on him or anything else i believe he must have had something like a PPK maybe a sour 38h who knows could something small he would have had a small handgun with him and the reason i say that is what if somebody says that's not a real bomb that looks like road flares because in those days we all carried road flares in cars i i didn't drive then but even into the 80s you know people carried road flares that looked like sticks of dynamite so anyway if the if the bomb charade had been exposed um, he would have needed something else and a small handgun at that point he would have been fundamentally in control of the aircraft he could have just pulled a gun on the stewardess and said tell the pilot to do what I say or I'm going to you know shoot you so he obviously had it the other reason he'd have one is when he landed on the ground I don't know what sort of an exfiltration plan he had but he's on the ground with two hundred thousand dollars well anybody couple guys could have beaten him up and taken it away from him unless of course he had a handgun you know I mean you have to realize that you could you could hit the ground and you could run into unfriendlies and in which case there's nothing like a small handgun so I I would like to know if he actually had a small handgun with him and unless they solve the mystery I don't know that that would ever that would ever happen those are those are big those are really you know big kind of mysteries I like those um, I would also like to know whatever happened to the gun that Hitler committed suicide with you know what what happened to it I mean certainly you would think somebody would have picked it up and said you know this is kind of historic this could be worth some money down the road and um, I'm not sure I'm not sure if he um, what happened to that it could very well be that it was just whisked back to the Soviet Union and nobody people lost its provenance you know that's the the problem with a lot of guns you know once the provenance is lost hey then it just becomes just another just another gun um, that's why I worked so hard to you know establish in my own mind some provenance on some guns that that uh, I've run across because once the story's gone and the chain is broken, then a lot of the special stuff about it just isn't special. You know, there's nothing, nothing there, and so um, it's definitely, definitely well worth uh, documenting anything you know about a gun that's been in the family or a bring back or anything else. Okay.
another question. I want some leather for my single action revolver. Where who makes the best? Um, there's there's a lot of answers to that. The the best answer I can give you is if you're going to go for very traditional, you want to look like someone out of the late 19th century. Um, there are several custom makers, Chisholm Trail and probably several others. They and buy the really good quality ones. If you buy the cheap ones like I have, they usually don't look very good. You know, they just don't quite look the way the way that we would expect them to look. But you know, for I don't really care. I'm not looking for you know the greatest thing for something like that. So I, I kind of have modest stuff. But uh, you can go to one of those makers. I would go for my first the first place I like to go is El Paso Saddlery for for my leather holster needs. I think they're beautiful. Uh, they've done great work, quality. Considering they hand make them to order, you get them in a reasonable time. I mean, they're they're great. So um, they're the guys I would go after. And you can get a little later styles too. You know, kind of get that. You don't have to look like you just uh, came in off the streets of Dodge City. You know, you can you can get some later styles, things that would complement later style guns like double action revolvers and things and. And actually do very well. Okay, here is the next question. That is, which is the better rifle, the Martini Henry or the Trapdoor Springfield? Ah, uh, that, that's, that's a great question because I've actually I've actually shot both. Um, I do have to I you know I do have to say that they. They're different. I don't know that one is actually better than the other, because when they both came out, and and um, with the trapdoor it came out, it had a 58 caliber. I think it was a rimfire. wasn't very good. Then it went to 5070. Then it finally went to 4570. So, comparing the 4570 trapdoors to the Martini Henry, um, they're both good. Um, I prefer the trapdoor in some ways because it has the exposed hammer. And it really is a good system. You know, a lot of people bag on it, say, well, it really started life as a conversion system, which it did, but it was so good that they kept it. And, you know, to be truthful, one of the reasons they kept it is because the army, the, the army owned the patent on it, didn't have to pay anybody. If they were going to make Remington rolling blocks, they would have had to pay Remington, and they didn't want to do that. So... It was a low-cost option, but it was just as good as anything else. And I think the strength of the Martini is it was designed ground up to be a rifle. It was never a, a conversion-type unit that was put on something existing. So it's very good. They're both very, very good. They both had problems with early foil ammunition. But once that was sorted out, they, they became very, very good. I don't... Yeah, I think... I personally think the trapdoor is more accurate, but that's anecdotal based on my experience. And uh, but the Martini is more powerful. I will say that. So you know, you take your pay your money and take your choice. Um, they're both excellent. I slightly prefer the trapdoor, but 
one of the things that puts a big smile on my face is shooting a martini henry so there you go um another one of these kind of questions came from the same guy uh, which is which is better the 30 luger or the nine millimeter luger who i will say for no one is going to use a luger pistol for self-defense anymore they're just not i mean it just you know, even the days of, well, this was dad's bring back, or this was my late husband's bring back, uh, none, none of that really is, is, is there anymore. They're all collector's items now. So they're, they're functionally the same. Um, the 30 Luger has a very interesting history. Um, it was actually field trialed by the U.S. Army, and uh, you can buy repo uh, U.S. marked Luger holsters, which are kind of cool. Which, which I guess are patterned on those trial trials guns, so you can you can do that. I I, I like them both. Certainly, nine millimeter is easier to find. Thirty Luger is harder to find, but if you like a quirky, cool something something different cartridge, then the thirty Luger is it. Um, they do take the same magazine, and you have to be a little bit careful sometimes because a lot of times they didn't they didn't mark them. Um, except by serial number, you know, and things, um, you know, you can, you, you can find, I'm sure it's happened, somebody puts a 9mm round into their magazine, and then it chambers into, it, they try to chamber it in their gun, and it jams half open, um, because the gun's actually 30 Luger and not 9mm Luger, so, there you go, I seem to recall somebody telling me about that, but it's been so long I've lost the details. So there you go. Uh, 30 Luger for quirky, quirkiness and, and kind of scarcity and, and kind of something different. 9mm Luger for ammo availability and the whole history of 9mm Lugers and who used them. So there you go. Uh, another question. Was the 38 Special ever a primary caliber for any nation's military? As good as it would have been in the revolver era, um, no one that I know ever used it. Um, I think that's there's a couple reasons for that. There's there's several reasons I can think of. Number one, 38 Special came out just when auto pistols were coming out, so they're not going going to adopt it when there are other options which were semi-automatic around. So that was part of it. Uh, another part of it was like U.S. military is kind of burned out on 38 caliber after the 38 Long Colt and its perceived weakness in the uh, Philippine insurrection. So nobody was running for running to the door to go get 38 caliber revolvers at that time, even though the special is more much more powerful. Um, so it, it really, it, but it served as a secondary weapon for military police. U.S. military probably used it from, you know, the, nine, the 1900, early 1900s, at least on some level, all the way up through, you know, like the 1980s. I mean, the Air Force had Air Force security, no more normally for things like MPs, uh, aviators. Uh, I remember aviators having Smith & Wesson uh, Model 10. They're, they're actually victory models. And that was in the 80s. So, you know, there you go. Um, any place where a 1911 would be 
considered a bit bulky or heavy or unnecessarily heavy uh, they kind of went with the um, they kind of went with the uh, 38 special revolver also with yeah C MP CID I think they had snub nose versions you know the kind of the guys kind of undercover guys or investigators so yeah that was that was the biggest thing I don't think there's ever been even an even a small country I know they did a lot of overseas sales but I think a lot of that was to police and not necessarily to uh, military so that's what I know all right why didn't Great Britain use the 38 special instead of the 38200 parenthetically 38 Smith and Wesson well if I really answer that honestly it's there would be bad words but it's because they were stupid um, here's why 38 special was already established it was a good round and all that it wouldn't fit into their their scaled down Webley pistols so therefore they didn't do it you know and so they were stuck with this and because they were they, they stuck themselves with it uh, when we did it lend lease give them 38 special re revolvers victory model revolvers they were in 38 Smith and Wesson because that's the ammunition they had they were making they didn't want two 38 caliber rounds because of the confusion it would cause so you know it, it was one of those things if they'd done the right thing at the beginning and they could have gotten a k-framed 38 revolver in the uh, 20s when they when they convert started moving in that direction uh, they would have been very well postured in World War II but they didn't and they weren't and that's just kind of the way that goes um, it's sad but true they they really blew that one um, I have to tell you a 38 caliber Webley is not a gun built for a lot of precision um, you know the ammunition you get now for it the 146 grain factory load is horrid and does not shoot and the ones I have shot it has not shot well um, what I actually did was I got the Lee mold and that's a 358 mold and notionally these things are 360 um, but then I powder coat it to put a little bit more size on it um, and I, I basically unsize it I don't size it to 358 I, I hope it comes out more I need it a little larger and then I um, I cut down a 38 special brass, even though it's it's not uh, exactly dimensionally correct. It works with the kind of 38 Smith and Wesson loads that you have. Um, the powder charges it doesn't stress that brass very much at all, and so you can basically do that and kind of replicate the original load a lot better when I did that the Webley shot better still nothing to write home about but um, you know it's it's on the rung just above the Nagant revolver so there you there you have it um, not a lot of fun um, it's 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 a you got to work to get some accuracy out of that you got to work now the the um, Smith and Wesson victory models that are in 38 Smith and Wesson the regular ammo shoots okay it doesn't shoot that great but it shoots okay the other stuff shoots shoots fine um, 
you know, it's it, they're both about the same, but they, it, that revolver shoots a lot better than the Webley or the, the Enfield copy of the Webley. Both about the same. Okay. Do you know anything about the Savage Model 1907 automatic pistol? I do. Um, it's a very nice little pistol. I like it very much. Um, it really looks art deco <laughs> kind of thing. It's really really a pretty little gun um, what I like about it is it's got the first kind of double stacked magazine I believe it's it's actually pretty good and uh, it's not really not really high cap not really all that great but um, yeah it's, it's a lot of fun to shoot um, it's a lot of fun to enjoy it's got kind of a tricky magazine lever on it but you know other than that it's okay um, the coolest ones, which I have not actually seen one. Well, I think I have seen one. They're Mark 7.65, and they were made for the French for World War One. You know, the French were buying anything. They bought rubies. They bought anything. And, and they kind of standardized on caliber and said, if it's 32, we'll buy it. And so they, that's, and that actually was smart. You know, the, the, the French, they get a lot of bad press and a lot of bad raps. But, you know, when their back was up against the wall, they made a lot of very good decisions. And that was one. The other, the other good decisions they made that I can think of is, hey, they, they basically said the Berthier rifle is the way to go. We can make it. We can, you know, they, we, just by doing a few things to it, we can turn out something that is on the battlefield more equal to the Mauser than our LaBelle is. And... They did that, and I, I thought that was actually pretty smart. Uh, they, they did a good job. They also did a really good job. The reason that a lot of Berthier rifles have got all these different vintage parts and things on them is, hey, they would go to a battlefield, and they would pick up all the rifles um, that were abandoned on the battlefield, and they would put them through a rebuild, you know, refurbish process strip any and if the gun was its, uh, itself unserviceable they'd strip any usable parts off it that was smart that was very very smart um, most military establishments in peacetimes do a lot of things that aren't very smart but that in and of itself was quite smart so um, yeah buying all those little savage pistols buying the ruby pistols and all that and you know the cool part was boy at the end of the war, they were selling that stuff off like crazy, you know, to countries that were, you know, literally had to pinch pennies, literally. You know, Finland just had a, I think their population might have been a million people at the time. Um, you know, hey, they, they haven't got the kind of money to uh, buy a lot of lavish equipment. So they bought a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff from that was kind of on the market because it wasn't needed anymore and uh you know got a few years out of it you know we're able to kind of at least equip their people very smart very very smart here's a related and more modern question will finland replace the 762 by 39 with 5.56 nato now that they're members of nato i assume that they would do that um, I don't know how long it's gonna take them though 
because it was just a few, I don't know, I don't know how many years ago, but it was a few years ago. They bought a bunch of uh, former East German AKs in 762 by 39 at bargain basement prices uh, from, I guess, the current German government. And so that was to equip their reservists because their reservists would have used the Valmet rifle, which was, you know, a modified AK. Um, so it would have been a very good rifle for their reservists. Now, whether or not they're going to keep two calibers or adopt a new one, I, I do not know. I assume, though, when you're a member of NATO, there are certain little bennies that go along with it. And some of it is financing new equipment through loans that NATO provides. Some of it may just be direct aid, um, all kinds of things. So that's what's that's what's happening. That's what's happening there. I think Sweden, the other country that I don't know if they're in NATO yet or not. I know the Turks were, you know, all angry with them. And you know, we should kick the Turks out. What what we want with those people, I don't know, but they they don't seem to be very cooperative, so they should be booted out. But the Swedes already use 556, five, so um, there wouldn't be much wouldn't be any conversion there. Maybe to a more modern rifle they kind of use uh they call it the ak4 but it's a um you know it's kind of that little fn deal or whatever it is so you know it's a 30 shot 5.56 inferior in most respects to the m4 style weapons that everybody uses now if they if they take themselves seriously they use <laughs> They use an M4 style weapon. So I don't know. Uh, they both seem to be. Finland has got the harder thing because they may have to. I assume if, if I were them, what I would do is I would give my front line and my active troops uh, five, five, six weapons and I would move the other ones to reserve. And that way, you know, it's it's basically um, everybody kind of gets keeps a weapon they're familiar with. And you just live with the two cartridges until, you know, such point you can afford to get rid of all the AK derivative weapons or, uh, you know, they wear out or whatever, whatever it is. Okay, here's another question. Is the AK-74 dead? It seems like all the footage from the Ukraine shows 762 by 39 weapons. Okay, is it dead? I don't think so. I think some of the footage you see, especially the Ukrainians, are are there's a lot of 762 by 39 weapons. The stuff I've seen of the Russians, you know, the AK-74 has a very unique muzzle break, and I think everything I've seen when they've had small arms, they've had that muzzle break. So I don't know that the Russian army is actually using any 762 by 39 rifles now they might be using you know some support weapons and other things but um looks like ak-74 is what they're using so i would say it's it's gonna be around now whether we'll get 545 ammunition back in the states it isn't gonna be like it ever it's never gonna be like it was um we'll have to get it from poland or romania or bulgaria or somebody who kind of knows what it is and can make it and I don't think we're ever going to see Russian ammunition again sadly so that's the uh, that's the end of that um, 
now there could be a regime change. There could be a whole deal. But I think it's such a political mess. I don't think, even if you had a regime change, and I don't mean just another guy takes over. I mean, you have a complete, almost a revolution, somebody new, new party, new outlook on everything. I don't know they're going to hand back anything in the Ukraine. Uh, that's just the way that is. My suspicion is the only possible way that happens is if there's a brand new regime, they want a fresh start, they want to engage with the West, and they're told, okay, the price for that is the stuff in the Ukraine, and here are all the other bennies we're going to give you, um, you know, favored trading and all the rest of that. I mean, I think that's just a fanciful and foolhardy view of the world that that could ever happen. But, you know, there's, there's, you have to say there's, uh, there's always a chance, I guess, but I just don't see that happening. I don't see them. They, they never want to give back Crimea. They never want to give back the, the areas that they currently occupy, which they view as ethnically Russian, um, areas. So therefore they're not going to give it back up. They're just not. So I would say that's, you know, five four five will the minute you cross over the border from Poland into Ukraine or Belarus or any of these places, uh, you will stop seeing weapons other than five four five. That's what I think. You know, it'll it's just gonna be that way. The front that front trace of NATO, uh, once you get over that, you're gonna see five four five by by uh, um, thirty nine. That's what you're going to see. So it'll be, it's interesting. And it is, it is a great cartridge. A friend of the podcast, actually, friend of the podcast kind of turned me on to it. He had an AK-74, which he sold, he later sold. And we bought the James River AK-74s. And man, are those good rifles. I mean, uh, do some good work with those. They are outstanding. So that's the... Uh, that's the deal there. So, that is it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And again, if you ever have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.